This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see... Just because I started talking about it. You got me all psyched out. Okay, the fart... We'll just just keep going. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Ryan, that's Adam, that's Dagan. Guys, we're digging into Matthew 21 today, and typically we kind of have some some goofball-y stuff that we talk, what, what, what is this grin on your face, what? I've got something we can talk about. This is not approved, okay? We did not. We said we were going to launch right in, dude. Do you realize how much stuff we have in Matthew twenty-one? You are open. Your opening sounded a lot like me reading. <laughs> okay, but no, I'm going to edit out the one where I totally sucked at it. Right? Oh, so dang it! That's oh, now I'm going to have to leave it in. Is that <laughs> what we're should, going to talk about? Yeah, I think we should have talked about it. I was like, hey man, his opening was like me reading a, a chapter or a verse. Okay, you know what? I tried to make you feel better about sucking at reading out loud, but now I'm just going to lean into it because of you wanting to do that. I didn't know you were going to, I thought you were, oh, never mind. I, I didn't know up. I was going to mess up either, but now the entire world's <laughs> going to have to know because I'm going to have to put it into the final edit. Kyle's perfect. He never messed up. Thanks, you know, man. I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say, you know, in, in, a, in a previous conversation, previous episode, um, we're sitting on the, on the same side of table, Adam and I versus you guys. And, uh-huh. and so the ham side of the table uh, the, you guys are the ham likers. We're the turkey likers. Okay, let's let's this go back ham, to that. This is a ham I'm still, thing. I'm still pretty yeah. mad about that. You, you, this ham thing with like, you guys, what's up with ham people? I have a problem that you're going to have to help me with. And that's, we just got through eating pizza. And you know what one of the ingredients of that yeah. pizza was? Canadian bacon. You know what mm. we call that here in America? Ham. We call that ham. Wow. And I watched you... Take that down your gullet. It was you good. seem to be enjoying yourself. It was good. I think we call it Canadian bacon. Do we ever put turkey on pizzas if turkey's so awesome? No one's like, Ugh, I want a turkey and cheese, please. I think I Ham. was advocating for turkey for Christmas yeah, and Thanksgiving. Gonna, you're not making, for turkey on my no, pizza. You're making no. good points. We're bringing this back. We, we want to celebrate the birth of our savior or, you know, the things Oh God, are going to go there. Or, yeah. You're going to go with Man, the birth of our turkey savior? all day. Okay. I could win every argument if I appeal to the birth of our savior, right? <laughs> Did they have Slurpees in the, in uh, the first century too? Is isn't that what ham, we have? Isn't ham unclean? No, ham, ham is unclean. Ham is no. so delicious. Y'all are unclean. That God gave That's, Peter a dream. So we would eat it. Right. Mm. He basically told Peter, you can have bacon wrapped steaks now. Eat it, bro. Right. Mm. Eat it. So what's the problem? I, I still don't get the ham hate and I'm fine with turkey. It's too salty. Well, yeah, a salty ham hey. has it, but but what if it's got a nice glaze, uh, a Boyd mm, glaze on mm, there? Mm, mm. <laughs> I thought this show like, was about biblical masculinity. Yeah, we got these guys with turkey. See, if you have to have here. it with a glaze, it means you have to have sugar and salt. It doesn't and everything. mean you have to have it with a glaze. It's just what fat Americans do. They're like, can we put a glazy no, that, sugar on this thing? That is 100% Do you not accurate. inject your turkeys? No, uh, no. You don't, don't inject your turkey at all. You don't put anything on it. You just like, just stick it in the oven. You just raw. Just, just raw, raw turkey. Just raw. I'll throw some Preferably mustard medium on rare. Medium yeah. rare turkey. I just yeah. want to throw out I. there. I literally just got through saying, guys, let's not get too far off. Like oh, before yes. we started Sorry. recruiting <laughs> or re- recording, because we You're literally up. have so much. But so have we have we even gained any more ground, Dagan, now that you've brought up the ham turkey debate? Have we gained any more ground than we did beforehand? Uh, I just I, know that we're more saved than they are. Ooh, oh, boy. oh boy. I just went Theo, bro. As I, <laughs> I'm going to move a little bit farther away oh, from that just in case kidding. we got some lightning coming you through. You told me I was like Andrew Tate's disciple, man. You that called like me an atheist, like dude from Britain. The I'd rather other day be an atheist than Andrew Tate's disciple. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about this. We just need to save uh, this episode by digging into what we're supposed to be doing right now, which is the Bible. So, uh, Horn, how about you embarrass yourself by reading out loud from the beginning? Let's get into <laughs> Matthew 21, and I'm going to give you 11 verses. The first 11. 11. Verses? You think you can keep right. track that entire length of time? I'm going to try to. I certainly hope so. Let's go. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage and the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them on immediately. Now this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just what Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them, and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others were cutting down branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Now the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he, said, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds are saying, This is Jesus, the prophet from, the Nazar- from Nazareth in Galilee. <clears throat> so the, the thing about this that's very important, I think we talked about this last week, but we were talking about how Jesus was received because he's doing his public ministry not in Jerusalem. He's doing a lot of it in Galilee, but now he's going back to Jerusalem. And the way that there's two very important things here. So the cloaks, that, that shows that they are submitting to Jesus as king, right? So he is coming in, you know, like Julius Caesar did after he crossed the Rubicon and came back into Rome, like he was welcomed as a future conquering hero that he hadn't done what they thought he was there to do anymore or yet rather. And then they went ahead and did that. And then the branches, I mean, that, that was a symbol of Jewish victory. Like this is something that these people would, would use these, these branches for that particular, uh, particular thing. But as we talked about, and it's probably a good place to start. This is a crowd was expecting a different Jesus than what actually happened <clears throat> when they read the old Testament. And when they read the prophets and then when they read the law, they were looking for a conquering warrior, a military hero that probably had a political bend, you know, just like Julius Caesar, who's already been mentioned, but they, they were looking for someone that was going to do a military emancipation. And I wonder if that goes into what we've said already at, at this point, three times he's told his disciples, yeah, I'm going to be killed in three days. I'm going to come back. And they just never really believed him because they already had this presupposition in their brain that Jesus was going to lead a physical military revolt against the hated Romans. Um, and so let, let's just kind of talk about this because this is an interesting thing. You see this depicted in, in movies. This is something that is really famous that has to be depicted. But th- there's just a lot here just in the response of the Jewish people to his arrival. Think about the wave of emotions between, you know, a king has the right to go commandeer an animal. And a king comes in and is like, I'm going to go take that one. And you would think he's probably going to go get the nicest stallion and that he can possibly find, right? And he's going to be the guy that's going to triumphantly ride in and free them from the Romans. And in actuality, he picks a donkey and a foal, who, a colt, who has not been broken yet. And so it's a sign of him being humbling himself and not being what they thought he was going to be. That's for sure. I think it's kind of cool that if you look at what a, what a colt and a donkey is, I mean, they were, they were the ones that carried the burden. They're the ones that carried all the stuff that needed to be carried. So he's riding in on a, on a, on a colt and a donkey, but in the end, he's the one that's going to carry our burdens to the cross. Well, I think that it's another thing that's important to point out about that. And I, I never really thought about this until I dug in. It's like, why was, uh, the colt's mom there beside it well it was because it was unbroken and unridden and if jesus were to get on onto an unbroken and unridden animal that animal was going to freak out like freak completely out but you're right adam you would think if this was his julius caesar moment that he's coming in on a white stallion and it's it's going to be it's going to be gallant and it's going to convey power and I guess that's another hint that everybody missed, that he comes in on one of the lowliest of animals. Like, it wasn't even an adult uh, donkey mm-hmm. or a horse or anything like that. Like, it was literally the most humble way that he could have come in, and yet they still greeted him as if he was a conquering hero on a stallion. He came to his death humbly, just like he came into this world humbly. Mm-hmm. He came into a stable in a manger with already donkeys. His mom was, you know, being pulled on a donkey as they're going to Bethlehem. and so. He came into humble beginnings and he's leaving in a humble way as well. And again, we have to remember that Matthew is writing to a mainly Jewish audience. So each, each of the gospels kind of have a different theme, a different target audience. And so in verse five, you know, when they're talking about that, they're, they're referring to Isaiah 62, 11, Zechariah 9, 9, and the fulfillment of prophecy. And so when you see these people do these like mathematic uh, calculations of what are the odds that one person could fulfill all these prophecies and different things like that, because 
you could easily read something like that and be like, dude, anybody could read the Old Testament and just, you know, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's not special. But it's like, yeah, okay, do a, do 50 more prophecies that, that Jesus and his life fulfilled. Like, that's a, that's a really big deal. But now we need to get to what is going to be a shock to nobody, which is one of my two favorite stories in all the Gospels. And it's one of two times Jesus cleanses the temple. More on that in a second. But Adam, if you can read Matthew 21, verses 12 through 16. Did I catch him slipping? Nope. Verses 12. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. And it's very likely that in Bethany he was hanging out with Lazarus and his family. We don't know that, but we can uh, assume that because that was kind of home base. Now, I want to talk about what I referred to earlier, because it wasn't until about a year ago when I was made familiar of the work by Titus Kennedy, who's an archaeologist, who's like a real world Indiana Jones. This guy is, uh, he talked about in his book about the cleansing of the temple happening twice. And I was like, wait a minute, like how, how does that quite work out? And what a lot of scholars have come to believe is that the description of Jesus cleansing the temple in Matthew 21 is the second time that he cleansed the temple because the other depiction we have is in John 2, 13 through 22, which is like right after he had done his first public miracle. And so from a timeline standpoint, there would be years of difference between these two things. And some of the supporting thing is um, the, the biggest piece of evidence is that these two separate cleansings and the details are completely different. And it's like, it would make sense that the first cleansing recorded in John 2 would be the warning and the second cleansing would be the judgment. It's a problem. Prophetic warning of what's going to, what's going to come. Absolutely. And so uh, this isn't, you know, a hill that I'm going to fight and die on, but like, yeah, it seems like twice, at least twice, Jesus performed an act of premeditated righteous aggression. And I want to point this out. I pointed this out on my interview with uh, Mike Glover, but some people miss about this story is that this was an inherently violent act. And the reason is, is because we don't see that he just drove out the animals. He drove out people. And if you've got a whip, and you're, you're running people out of an area, that is an inherently violent act. Now, that is not license for all of us to be violent because Jesus was violent. But at the same time, these people that think that Jesus was always Jesus meek and mild and that he was never aggressive and he never showed anyone the line of Judah side, the, the revelation side with the sword in his mouth and the, the tattoo on his leg and the robe dipped in blood, this is him kind of pointing to the fact that, look, in this righteous uh, amount of expression. I'm going to act in this way. So, so you guys talk a little bit more about, about Jesus and the cleansing of the temple, because I just love this story because when I talk about seeking the line of Judah, one of the ways that you can try to wrap your head around that is a story like this. Love that. Not only does he kick them out, but he immediately brings in the blind and the lame and the sick and those who would not have been welcomed there because they were unclean. The, the Jews would not have wanted those people there. And who are the first people that he goes after after he kicks them out? He brings in the people that should have been there all along. And the people that should have been being served the entire time by those money changers. Right. You know, this is, this is Passover, right? So people are coming from all over to, to come celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, right? Families bringing, you know, grandma and grandpa loading them up. They're all bringing their stuff, their supplies, whatever. And some of them are, it's a multiple day journey. To, to get there to celebrate Passover. Well, when they get there, they, you know, they didn't bring their perfect sheep, you know, calf, goat, whatever. They, they, they didn't bring the appropriate animal for sacrifice. One, because, you know, I think the journey for some of these people, you know, it's all on foot. It could have been pretty perilous, right? And I think when you, uh, you know, I can imagine it's, it's dangerous. You could have had something happen to this thing that was important for your Passover um, experience in Jerusalem, this, this thing set for sacrifice. And I think it also makes you a traveling target, right? Like you're a target for people that, well, I'm just going to take that one because I know when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to be selling them in the temple for five times what they go for, right? Like I think that became the expectation. 
And so here's Jesus. He comes in and he sees his father's house with scalpers all over it. You know, and I imagine like if I, if, if, if I loaded up my family with a handful of things and enough uh, supplies to get to, to walk them to Orlando, Florida, right, to go to Disney World, and someone had bought all the tickets and they're selling them to me for $10,000 a day, kind of a deal. Right. I would be furious, right? Especially if my dad owned Disney World. You sure. know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of thing, that's what he's coming in here to is hey, these, all of these people are getting taken advantage of by the people that are supposed to be leading them like spiritually and robbing them blind. When I think as well, you know, Ryan, I think a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned like pragmatism. We, we keep trying yeah, to read pragmatism into, into scripture <clears throat> because I've said before, uh, when I was doing my MBA program, we had a debate in one of my classes where uh, during Hurricane Katrina, there was like a guy in Ohio that went to all the Lowe's and Home Depot's in the area. He rented a big truck. He bought all of the generators he could fit in the truck. And then he drove down to New Orleans and he sold them all like at 10 times what he paid for them. And people like the, the class was split down the middle. Half the people were like, what a horribly immoral thing to do and all that. And then the other half of the class, which I was on was like, well, that's a luxury item. It wasn't like he was doing that with bottled water and, you know, uh, dehydrated food. Like, you didn't need those things to survive. You did not need a generator creating heat for your home to survive in New Orleans during hurricane season. You just didn't need that. And it, some people will take that same level of pragmatism to a story like this. Like, well, why was Jesus being so mean to the money changers? That, hey, money changers got to get theirs too, man. And if they want to <clears throat> charge it at a premium, like, hey, it's Passover week. Things are always more expensive during OU Texas weekend down in Dallas than they are in the weekend before the weekend after the fair right? Like we should grow to expect that. But again, that's when people are bringing their pragmatic modern worldview into something that we see here in scripture. And that's what really got me was the whole, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Like look at the modern day church today. I'm like, we have a talking normal <laughs> volume. We need volume, baby. We can't you, hear you. You want me to be louder. Okay. <laughs> You want me to be louder than what I was just saying? I want you to speak in a way that where the mic's going to pick it up, where we're not going to have to edit it later. I love oh, you, Ryan, man. but please use your big boy voice. This is like my wife gets on me about this. No, it's too. not, but yeah, she does. I can treat you like she does. <laughs> She's real don't. nice. She's real nice. I love my wife. She's prettier than Kyle. Go ahead and make your point, man. Agreed. Make right, your point. Sorry. But what is the modern day church today? And I wrote something down. I was just like, we've turned a house of sanctification into a, a den of self-righteousness. $500 sneakers. Yeah. We've turned a house Those of are cheap ones. righteousness into a den of pragmatism. And we've turned a house of conviction into a den of, um, I would say, a den of acceptance. And so like, that's, that's what the modern day church is. We're not preaching the gospel like we should preach the gospel anymore. We're trying to find pragmatic ways to get more people in the door, make more people happy, and try to give people to give more to whatever church organization is going on. We're not spreading the true gospel like we should. And then some of those legalist church churches, or maybe some of those Theo bro churches that I would probably like a little bit more are not really pushing out the grace message that Christ wants to get across as well. But we're, we're stuck on two sides. Now we have, we have the grace and then we have the righteousness, but we never find anything in the middle. And I think this is where Christ brings the lion and the sheep together in this, in this temple. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and that's something that we, we've railed against a lot, which are these churches that give you, you know, right after the concert's over and the smoke clears, it's here's four ways to live a better life today, and it's not undergirded by, <clears throat> you can tell they wrote the four-week series and then tried to backfill it with, with scripture, typically out of context. That was the first time when I started, and I've talked about this a lot before, the first time I started to really wonder, like, what am I still doing here at Life Church under Craig Rochelle? Because while I was sitting under another kind of how to be better at life message, and then he quoted a scripture, and it just happened, so happened to be a scripture that I knew the context at the time, and I was like, that's not at all what that means. Like, wait, wait a minute. And then I'm like, what else has he said in the last 11 or 12 years that I've been here that I just took because he's funny and engaging and entertaining and this church is awesome. They have coffee and chips and cookies but before you walk in the door. But you're exactly right. There was something I showed. Uh, I can't remember that dude's name. Do you remember the, the name of the guy that I posted on Instagram like a day or two ago? This is coming out months later, but it's that old preacher at the G3 conference. 
Oh yeah, I can't remember, I can't remember the guy's name. Yeah, I watched it. I had never seen this guy before, but he was yelling, and he was saying, "We don't have preachers anymore. We have teachers in this country." Yeah. And he's like, and he just he God he lit the pragmatism on fire. Like this was a verbal turning over of the tables of the money changers, and it was just like this dude's right. Like so, you'll have the Theobro churches that are teaching you how to have right theology, but your heart. And, and your grace for people is basically non-existent. And then you have the Dunderhead churches, which it's, it's all Ted talks with Bible verses sprinkled over the top. And, you know, people lose the thread that way as well. That's why I look at my church. And so we all go to the same church. So I'll brag on it a little bit. Faith Bible church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is not a super entertaining church. You're not going to listen to the band and be blown away by the musicianship or by the voices or the melodies or the song choices or all those types of things. It's just, it's not going to be the same as, you know, an Elevation or a Bethel or what any of these places that have professional musicians playing there every single week. And then you get to the sermon and it's, uh, the, the guy who preaches is pretty dry. He has a dry style, the way that he approaches scripture. He puts stories in around the same time. He kind of rinses and repeats his message. And every time I am tempted to complain, either in my brain or to someone else or to my wife, I have to remember our church is incredibly healthy because mm. it grew very, very, very slowly. And then when COVID hit and we, we built onto the church, a bunch of people left two churches in our area, Life Church in Henderson Hills, looking for something that was a little bit more meaty. And where did they end up? They ended up at our church. And it's because the gospel is, is preached. It is taught. And again, you're not ever going to leave there with your hair on fire because that's just not Pastor Mark Hitchcock's thing. But it, it's so healthy to where it's like that's a model for people to be looking for a church like it, that in their only, community. It, not only do they want that, but they want to hear the truth. And they want to hear the tr- truth spoken in all things at all times and it not be sugarcoated. Right. It's a good medium if you're coming from Life Church because Mark gets very formulaic and is preaching. I mean, I can tell you how every sermon's going to go. Maybe not what's in it, but having friends that come from Life Church or come from one of those seeker sensitive churches, they're actually getting expository preaching through this man. And like God has given him a gift. God has God has grown his church not because, hey, he's taking a pragmatic approach. No, God's growing his church because he's just preaching the Bible mm-hmm. and he ends with the gospel every time. The music may not be there. I think our music's not my thing. Um, there, but I think the people who put it on do a wonderful job right. in doing it. But here's what I have to know about worship. Worship is just like the Bible. It's not about me. Right. It's true. It's about worshiping God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point. And one quick thing on that, and we need to, we need to keep moving on, um, to people that kind of have a tendency like me to be very critical. Like I have a very critical eye. I'm very critical of myself, but I'm critical of any presentation. If you're complaining about the people at your church that are doing the music, understand that maybe only one of those people on stage is being paid. Mm -hmm. The rest of those people are volunteers. Okay. So are they the the world's greatest guitar player? No. Are they the world's most grooviest drummer? No. But these are people that are volunteering and they are worshiping God by helping you worship God. And that is a mandate of us to be able to do that. So if you want to complain, but not learn how to play guitar yourself, or, or learn how, how to, you know, sing some sort of melody or something like that. Just go ahead and keep that to yourself. Like if you want to listen to amazing Grammy award, uh, nominated music for the rest of the time and, and only listen to people that are amazing musicians, you have that opportunity in this world that we're in right now. Do you want to hit that? Uh, on, on, on this specifically, this might be an obvious comment, but do you not feel like this is a shift in Jesus's ministry at this moment where there's been times where he's healed in the past, he's done things in the past, but it's kind of been in the background. And there's sometimes he's done things that don't talk about this. That's not happening anymore. Now he's doing it out in the open. It's in the temple. He's healing people. He's doing things. It's not being hidden anymore. Yeah. Cause he knows it's, the time's up. It's cha- exactly. Yeah. It's changed. The time is coming. Yeah. I think, I think the shift certainly happened because he's wanting his, he's at the point in his ministry where he's not worried about the crowd size mm-hmm. or his ability to move yeah. because he, he's on the way to Jerusalem. Like we're in passion week, we're in Holy week now. Mm-hmm. Right. And so 
some of the other times when he told people, hey, don't tell everybody, it's because he's he's trying to operate and do ministry without just being completely overran and without. So think about what they did as he came into the city. They treated him like a conquering king. They would have done this two years beforehand had he done any of those types of things beforehand as well. That's an excellent point. How hard about, would it have been to do ministry? Think about what they do to him in a few days. Those same people who say yeah. Hosanna. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take long. Turn on him. It's going to change. That's a great point. Um, let's go ahead and hit the next section. Um, Adam, or you just read. Uh, Dagan, you're on. All right, so we're going to do Jesus cursing the fig tree. So let's go verses 18 through 22. Now early in the morning, as Jesus was coming back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree at the roadside, he went to it and found nothing but leaves on it. And he said to it, never again will fruit come from you. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were astonished and asked, how is it that the fig tree has withered all away or away all at once? Jesus replied to them, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, if you have faith, trust and confidence in me and do not doubt or allow yourself to be drawn into two directions, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask for in prayer, believing you will receive. So one of the interesting things about this particular story is I have heard people advocate for before to not read commentaries. They're like, if you're reading commentaries, you're reading people's interpretations of the word of God. You're not reading the word of God. Well, it wasn't until I was studying this this week that I ever understood why Jesus got mad at a tree. Right. So I think a couple of weeks ago we were talking about, you know, your wife is mad that you didn't plant a tree before, you know, you knew you're going to move like a, a year later or something like that. And you, you got trees that like shed sticks and like, you know, this is like the, the tree crew right now. So why was Jesus so mad at a tree? Well, figs, I guess, were used as a metaphor for the Jewish people. And as anyone that's ever listened to John MacArthur talk, he's obsessed with fruit. And the thing was, is fruit was a sign of a right relationship with God. And so when Jesus, you know, came upon this tree, he wasn't making a comment about a tree because I've heard non-Christians before, like on some, you know, interview or whatever. It's like, okay, we're, we're really going to follow a guy that got mad at a tree because it didn't have figs on it. Like, who's going to follow a guy like that? And if you're dumb, like I was, if you're ignorant about the context of what we're deciding here, you're going to take that argument hook, line, and sinker, and you're going to be like, yeah, I mean, this impetuous dude that got mad at a tree and cursed it and it died. But that that was the one thing that was shocking for me for the story that I'm so thankful that I had commentaries where people were able to just explain this in a very, very simple way, and it's elucidated the story for me in a way that wasn't there prior to. Yeah, the people who should have welcomed him, who should have had fruit, fruit the Jews, rejected him. I just think it also shows his dominion just over the world and over people that, you know, he cursed a tree with no fruit. What is he going to do to a person with no fruit? Well, it, yeah. And with that, the power of his judgment. Yeah. Like it was, it, it wilted in a heartbeat. No one had ever seen anything happen like that. So his, his judgment is immediate. But couldn't you almost look at this as like, you know, Jesus cursed this tree for not having any fruit and it wilted and it died. But like, isn't that what happens to us once we hear the gospel is that we, we become born again. And so we kind of are open to, you know, we wither away at our old self and become new and start producing fruit. I, that made me think about that as well. I, I, I was thinking about, you know, Adam in Genesis. He goes to a fig tree, not for fruit, but to pull off a leaf to cover himself in mm-hmm. shame. Right. So it's like even man's interaction with like the symbolism of a fig tree has been pretty ironic since the very beginning. Right. And that's not by accident for sure. I say irony. It's, it's not by accident. When I um, think, go ahead. Oh, you know, and, and, but you know, God searches our character to see whether there is, is faith and love and hope and joy, um, which is all the fruit of the spirit. Um, if we've got patience, if we've got any self-denial, any, any, if we've got fervor in prayer, you know, if we're actually walking with God and if he doesn't see those things, he's not satisfied with the church going, the prayer meetings, the communions, the sermons, the Bible studies, right? Like, like those are the leaves where he is the fruit in our lives. And if he doesn't see that, you know, we, we get the judgment. Kyle, you mentioned uh, that this was maybe out of, possibly out of character or not typical with um, the other miracles that Jesus has done. This is one of only two that was negative, And the other one was 
when he cast the demons into the swine mm-hmm. and the swine ran off the cliff and died. So I think to your point, when you thought, why did Jesus curse a tree? Well, why did Jesus kill all of those swine? Same right. thing. He had, there why was a rid of that ham. Well, <laughs> oh, and we're back. Oh. Light it up. Get him, Ryan. Get him. Oh, oh these ham. He killed the ham. He killed the ham. He killed, because they're unclean and it's terrible food. He did. And he, he saved but the turkey. But you said it was one of the, one of the, uh, what did I say? What did you say? You what, said what it was uh, one of the miracles that he did. That it was, was one of the negative, negative destructive yeah, miracles. Because it was right. He killed the ham. Because he had to kill the ham. No, he didn't yeah. have to. He chose he to. Chose no, he to. saw those hams. He knew how sweet the ham was. And so <laughs> he wanted to make a point to the populace like, hey, I'm taking these sweet hams from y'all. No this bacon for anybody. This is sacrifice. I'm going to need to read a, a commentary su- on this story to really get the context. I have this no. commentary from John McCam. McHamther. Um, yeah. So, uh, so ultimately you don't need to read a commentary just to know that y'all are super duper wrong and on the wrong side of this and you will forever be on the wrong side of this. And I know exactly what to get you for your birthday, a big maple glazed ham, spiral cut. Uh, yeah, you know, whatever you want to do. I like the thicker pieces, but I will say with this, um, (laughs) sorry, shut up, man. Come on. We're being adults here. Come on. We're adults. All right. So another thing with this that I think is important to point out before we move on is this tree had a chance to sprout fruit. How much time did it have to sprout fruit? And it just didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is also, uh, it points to the patience of God. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times as well, uh, to where there, there could be, there could have been fruit this entire time. And it wasn't like the, it wasn't given the ability to have fruit. And again, he's not talking about a tree, right? He's talking about Israel, but you know, you're the tree and you've had all this time to bear fruit and here comes, here comes Jesus. And so you're like, you know, like you're trying real hard to push something out. Like how many of us are like that? Right? Like uh, mine just kind of comes out. Sometimes it's a struggle, but you know, the tree's like, man, like I really regret not bearing fruit to this point because now it would be convenient to have some. <laughs> and it also shows like God's, like you said, God's patience with us because he's not going to treat us like the tree. I mean, we have a whole life to, to one, hear the truth and then two bear fruit. So when even there's no mistake, uh, there's no coincidence. This is the Monday of passion week. So doesn't it seem kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of elementary or, or uh, unimportant for him to be making this point on a Monday of Passion Week in Jerusalem. Like, and if we take the timeline uh, literally, like he just got through cleansing the temple, this seems like a downgrade, right? This is seeing the headliner, uh, you know, and then seeing the opening act last. You know what I mean? Like some people would like that because you get to go home and get in bed earlier. But, you know, the, the promoters don't like that as much. You don't sell as many beer and T-shirts. Um, so let's go into the next story here. So we'll just put it out there to whoever wants to read it because I forget who read last. So we're going to get into the authority of Jesus' challenge. So Adam, uh, since you got pointed out by Dagon, let's go ahead and read verses 23 through. Verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that. John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I, I laughed when I read it now, and I laughed when I read it earlier. Well, it's so go ahead and hit it. I know you got some, some good commentary it's for just, that. So. Just because it's so witty. It's, it's interesting. You know, he, he, he has trapped them again. They are trying to trap him and by him returning a question with a question, he has taken the wind out of their sails and realized that they can't answer the question in the affirmative or in the negative. If they say that he's from heaven, they're toast. If they say he's from the people or of human origin, they're toast. So they can't answer the question. He's already given them their answer. It's amazing. Well, and I think as well, if you've been through any negotiation training or sales training, I know, Ryan, you've done a bunch of sales training just like I have. Uh, and Dagan, you, you've got a lot of people that, that you help with sales and all that. Like you don't want to get into a questioning battle back and forth with the person you're trying to close. 
Okay. So if you ask somebody a question, they ask you a question back and then you answer their question, you have handed them the keys to the conversation. So you never want to do that. You always want to ask a question to get the onus back on them to answer. And in this thing, they asked their question, their zinger, right? They had their zinger ready to go because they wanted him to say that uh, his authority comes from God, which means they could, you know, basically string him up for blasphemy. He asked them a question back and they just go with it. They're, they're like, oh, crap, we need to really figure out what, what we're going to say here. And just by the fact that they took the, the, the point of receiving in that conversation, it kind of exposed their lack of authority to question him to begin with, right? Because if they had authority and their question was the ultimate question, then they would have never su- accepted the subservient position of having to answer a question. Because it's like, no, Viva asked the questions. Like that was their their moment to, <laughs> to, be, to be the Nazis and be like, no, you're going to answer our question. So it was just a, a big shift in the power dynamic here. I, that was a great point, Kyle. Yeah. Man, you just freaking it nailed good. it. I mean, gosh, how, how did you get so smart? Yeah. Dead air is my favorite. That was awesome. And there was a <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll keep going. I thought I, yeah, I thought you had some other stuff because I have more things to say about it. The thing is, is if, um, if, if the reason the conundrum they were in this conundrum is because if they affirm John's ministry, then they will simultaneously be condemning themselves because they condemned John's ministry, right? So they can't answer that way. But then if they deny John's ministry and the validity and, and value of it, then they fear that the people will revolt. Because John was so beloved. And I mean, gosh, I've asked some great questions before. I like that were just like super intelligent, super well planned out. I've never off the cuff. Again, I'm not God, so that that helps. But uh, but I've never off the cuff been able to ask one question to not only take the heat off of me to answer something, but to put them in an absolute lose-lose situation. And it's so lose-lose that they basically decide, (laughs) I'm not playing your game anymore. He's like, all right, well, I'm not playing your game. No way for them to win. They can't answer the question. Well, in this crowd, you know, we we just, this is the crowd that just laid coats and bronze down to welcome their, you know, and and now, of course, these guys are terrified of the crowd, you know? I mean, they just watched them welcome him into the city, and now they're trying to, to, to trap him. I can just imagine, like, man, these spineless little weaklings just saying this question it backfires and they're all and you know where it says uh what it says and they began debating among themselves you know this little huddle of weenies that are just like hey man if we say something we're in t- where they're gonna kill us you know and it's just like what a bunch of losers these guys are i think they're always just trying to politicize everything they're always trying to be more political than they because that's their world that's yeah. where they can flex yeah and it's just like it's just they're like oh how can i how can i say this the right way and be pragmatic and not make everybody mad at me. Well, and to the crowd forever, they've been the authority. Yeah. Right. And now the authority has shifted to the dude who just walked into the, from into Nazareth. The city. Right. Well, and, and all the way up until this moment, they have taken the, uh, softer approach to try to take him out. So they try to ask him questions publicly to stump him to either make him blaspheme so that they can charge him with blasphemy or make him seem silly. Cause if he answers the question in their minds, unpoetically or in an unsatisfactory manner, it's the same way that if you go to some, you know, town hall meeting for a politician that you're interested in, and then they just like have kind of a wet fart performance. You're like, eh, I don't really want to, I don't think I want to support that person. And like, it has that same feel to it. That's what they're trying to do to Jesus. But you know, before too long, they're going to take a different tact entirely. Or if Jesus showed up to Passover with a ham, out of a turkey well then right. he, then everyone goes to heaven that's the thing okay. you know what what if this tree had bared hams how awesome would that have been right but that didn't happen jesus would have been super satisfied there would have been no fig tree example right because ham's so awesome everyone would have been distracted i'm not going to lose this ham debate i'm telling you this right it's now come up I'll four never, more times okay great all right let's get into this uh next parable of jesus so ryan let's go uh parable of the two sons that's right. verses 28 through 32 but what do you think A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. But he replied, I don't want to. Yet afterwards he regretted it and went. And a man came to his second son and said the same thing. And he replied, I will, sir. And yet he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? They said, The first, Jesus said to them. They said, The first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness and you did not believe him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even have second thoughts afterwards so that as to believe him. It is so hard. Yeah, Adam's making like the oh boy face. So again, if you read the Bible as if Jesus has no personality, as if he's just a robot, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You lose how much of a burn this is. Huge burn. There is no more hated category of people number one and number two most hated despised reviled people by the jews in this time in history are tax collectors and prostitutes they are they are just hated for a myriad of reasons two separate reasons but hated all the same and so to say to the religious elites again as as y'all just pointed out the ones that everybody looked to the ones that had all the authority the ones that had all the political power all that stuff to say that and then basically say y'all are behind the tax collectors and prostitutes. Like this is like a major mic drop moment that you can just read through and you're kind of confused by the parable and you might miss it. It's, it's the, so important. It's the brood of vipers. Ouch. <clears throat> right. I mean, cause people say, Oh, a brood of vipers and they don't really know what that means. It's like, think of the most offensive thing that you could call a group of people in modernity. That's what Jesus called these people. Yeah. Right. It wasn't a racial slur or something like that, but it was like calling them something that would have been you know, fighting words, for lack of a better term. These were, these were fighting words, for sure. What was Matthew's profession? Tax collector. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing. Oh, go ahead, Dagan. You were in. Well, just, you know, it, he basically <clears throat> tells them, you know, it's the humble rejects and cast-offs, not the proud and prominent, um, who God will allow to participate in his work. And how upside down of a thought is that in this time? Like, you know, in, in previous chapter, we talked about, uh, or, or, Previous episode, we talked about um, the blind men, right? Castoffs, and Jesus is making his way to them in spite of everybody saying, "Leave them alone," you know, "Don't bother Jesus," and he goes and gives them their sight. You know, it's like that. He, I mean, he really did turn everything upside down. Like th- th- their measure of everything was the law that Moses delivered to them. So it's like they had in in their estimation, like the path to God. Jesus was here to save them from Rome. Right. He was there here to conquer. And, and all of the, you know, these things that he's saying, it's just turning everything upside down. And I can see it's like, you know, well, they had to hum, huddle up and debate because they were probably like, did you guys hear that right? What's he saying? Well, did no, I get that? They keep getting outsmarted as well because they answer him initially by saying, you know, which one was righteous. And they, they say, oh, yeah, the first one's righteous. And it's like, because they think they're answering like, yeah. oh, we're in the cool kids crowd. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, but you're correct. And by the way, you're not in that group. You're the second son. Because that's the whole thing. In this parable, God is the vineyard owner. The first son are the sinners who were disobedient initially and then, you know, repented under John. And then the second son, those are the religious leaders that claim to be obedient. It reminds me of the rich young ruler. <clears throat> like he thought he was super duper righteous. And he's like, yeah, I do all these things. But yeah, just tell me how I can be perfect and go to heaven. It's like, bro, you're missing it. You're missing the whole thing. I mean, if you look back at this parable and you look at the, the father and think of God saying to you, repent and believe, I don't want to, I don't want to repent and believe, but yet afterwards they regretted it and went and repented and believed. And now these Pharisees and Sadducees are being called to repent and believe. And they're like, all right, I will. But then they don't mm. because they're caught up in their own selfishness and satisfaction. And they already think they're righteous to begin with. But didn't yeah. God already know? It? Never mind. We're going to go there. We're not going to do that. Do it. Do, do it. it. Peel because off I want to get into it in the, peel in the next episode. Off. So just go ahead and peel it off, bro. So if. Um, <laughs> let's go. How, so how, how, do, how do we know if God is saying that uh, in this parable, it says, I will not, but later he changed his mind. How do we know that that person, uh, what if he hadn't, ch- how am I going to say this? Are you reading the message? Where was that? What verse? Uh, <laughs> that's so offensive. 29. <laughs> yeah. Verse 29. I will not. He answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Could you change yeah. your mind the other direction? Can you repent and believe? Can you repent and then can you repent and believe and then choose to not believe? You cannot lose your salvation. Right. So you would say they never repented. If they don't repent, yeah, they never repented. They never truly repented. So you can go one direction, but not the other. You cannot lose your salvation. If you could, you've already lost it. Well, I thought you would say that you never had it to begin with. I'm just saying if you could lose your salvation, you would have already lost it. But yeah, you would never have had it to begin with. 
See, and that's, that's, I don't understand how it can be go one way. You can say, I don't want to follow. Okay. I'm following now you, and then change your mind later. You can't change your, you never really truly believe the gospel. So, so, so this person in this scripture in verse 29, I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. And so if he changed his mind and went in the parable, it means that this guy decided to follow so, Jesus. So what do you do when you become saved? You believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and saved you, saved you from your sins. That's all you do. That's how you become saved. There's nothing else after that. And you repent. And you repent. Sure. So what's happening right now is think of it this way. He's asked them to repent. Here's my message. Believe and repent. They're saying, eh, we choose not to repent. They haven't even repented yet. Still, it's hard for me to see how it's a one-way street. And you can, you can get there, and then you can never fall away. That one's hard for me to follow. You're not God. But you're 100% <laughs> right. And my thing with that is we get hung up on that. And we get hung up on, like, God, here's God's sovereignty. I'm really big on God's sovereignty. But sometimes we get hung up on what we can do. And there is, we do do something. We do our action in after the gospel is presented to us and we believe and our eyes are open to the beauty of the gospel. We have a choice to repent. And if we choose not to repent, I mean, that's where we came back from a farther episodes where I talk about blaspheming the Holy spirit, like the Holy spirit's eyes have opened to you. The beauty of the gospel, you're choosing not to believe it. You're choosing to go your own way. You're choosing to harden your heart. God's allowing you to harden your heart towards it. So you said, you said the word choose like six times there, but there are a lot of people that kind of fall in the same theological camp as you that would never even use, like choose might as well be the F word. Cause that's how, I, and, and that's I, how rough that word is. And, and I hear you on that. And like, and that's where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not in the hardcore camp that you don't do anything to get your salvation. You have to do something. You have to repent. You have to see the beauty of the gospel. And then when we talked about the whole, um, blasting in the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. I'm like, the most unforgivable sin I could honestly think of is your eyes are open to the gospel and you just choose not to repent and live the life that God wants you to live. I used to lie awake in fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I hope, I remember, I remember being in fear yeah. of it, like even going into my head. Yeah. Of yeah. Like if the thoughts going in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, it just came in my head. I'm toast. Questioning, questioning is, I don't think is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're mere humans. We don't have the knowledge that God has. We're going to have our questions, but to flat out know the gospel, like who's that guy from that Christian group? Oh man. Cademan's call. Can't remember his Mm. name. Derek Webb. Derek Webb. Derek Webb. Like, yeah, I totally believe the gospel. I just choose not to live it because there's certain things in the Bible. I don't like that's straight up blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Like, if he's going to go to his death saying, I know the truth of the gospel. So can he change? So would you say he never actually believed the gospel then? I would say he never truly repented of anything and does not see the, and sees the beauty of the gospel, but chooses to harden his heart towards repentance. So I don't want to go too, too far into that because I think we're going to be, yeah, this is like the way off subject. Well, this is going to be like (laughs) pre-fight for the super fight that's going to come out next week. Um, But so again, Keep me accountable. We, we got a little bit more before we close out. <clears throat> Derek Webb has made music that has, and has played at concerts where people came to faith in Christ with lyrics that were profoundly biblical, um, that were very gospel-centered, and then they were very successful, <clears throat> and now he's doing what he's doing now. And I mean this sincerely because I don't have a good answer. How would it be possible that he would be in that position, able to do those things, and to be able to create those lyrics that only you could argue would come from somebody that understands the true sweetness that comes from repentance and the acceptance of the gospel, but then simultaneously be a guy that has fallen away so much so that a strict reformed Calvinist would say, yeah, he was probably never saved to begin with. Cause look at the devil in the desert. He uses those same words against Christ and twists them. So you're saying he was twisting. I'm just saying he was using it for personal gain. I don't know what he was using it for. People come to Christ all the time through people come through Joel Olstein. People came through Ravi Zacharias. People came through Ray Bolts, who's now a practicing homosexual, who wrote a lot of good theologically correct songs. But, Wait, but you're saying those people are not are not saved. Would you say they're saved because they came from them? 
What, what do you mean? No, no, no I, I'm, I, I'm asking about like Robbie oh, Zacharias, Joel Osteen, oh, yeah. are okay. they not saved? Like, here's the thing is the level of depravity that comes from sinners saved by grace and sinners not yet saved by grace, like they're going to be oddly similar for a lot of people. Like, I, again, the fruit of Robbie Zacharias' life in every area of life, except for his sexual depravity, mm-hmm. you could say, absolutely, this man is a Christian but he kept giving into to sexual sin. Yeah. Some of these people are actually Christians. They keep giving into financial sin and dishonesty and those types of things. So I think it would be really hard to try to start categorizing. Joel Osteen's his own category of stupid, but it's like to start categorizing certain people like a Robbie Zacharias and say like, nope, he, he, you know, he brought a lot of people to Christ, but he himself was not like, how could you bring someone to Christ I, so, even though in not understanding but, yourself? But when it comes down to it, I'm just trying to use your argument about Derek Webb, who basically says, yeah, the gospel I believe it, but I choose not to with Robbie Zacharias. I use him as an example is that he did some pretty horrible things, but people came to Christ through him. Um, whether, whether Robbie Zacharias is in heaven or not, I don't know. I don't know what the convictions were on his heart, even though he had this secret sexual sin. I don't know if he ever repented or what, but people have secret sins. Let me, let me try to drill down right. my, my actual uh, question. Cause I feel like, I feel like this is actually very important. Can a non-believer who doesn't actually understand the gospel from a heart level, not intellectually, not able to, to quote the verses, but actually understand it from a personal heart level and have repented of their sins. How could, how could somebody that has not done that lead other people to Christ? That's the thing that I find odd. Like how can a non-Christian evangelize to a Christian about Christianity, which is something that they themselves don't possess in terms of salvation? Does that make sense? It's a fervent question. Like I don't, I don't have a great answer to that, but I would assume. So you, you say uh, people have come to Christ through Joel Osteen. Have they though? Or did they come to Christ in spite of him? I think they've come to Christ through Joel Osteen. He, he said something that opened their eyes to the gospel and whether they see it as a repentance or they see it as a prosperity, God can still move through their lives through Joel Osteen. Just like God still moved through the lives of people through Ray Boltz's music, through Derek Webb's music, through Ravi Zacharias, who had secret sin. Through Moses, through King David, through Paul, the murderer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he can still use those people, but doesn't mean that they are saved. Dagan, you're being awfully quiet. You got anything to add here? Well, you know, as long as Joel Osteen didn't mess up the gospel message, like all the other stuff that he says on the outside of that, 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 that's all fluff, right? The gospel message of of the reality of we were created by God. We were separated uh, from him uh, by sin, you know, Jesus, death, resurrection, salvation, all that. Like that's, that's the thing you got to get right. Like everything else, um, man, it's just, it's like we talked about in a previous episode where you were talking, you were struggling with like, why do we have the same divorce rate within church going people that we do non-churched? Well, it's the, the the depravity you talked about. Like, just because I go to church doesn't mean that I am more patient with my wife. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, just because I know Jesus doesn't mean I'm instantly more patient with my wife. Now, the closer I get to Jesus, I would think the, the more I'm leaning into him and learning his scripture and living in a, in a, a life. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm seeking sanctification. The easier it is for me to be patient with my wife, which... Like the more songs I write about Jesus, I would think that would be the same thing. You know, if I'm in a position where I'm writing sermons week after week after week about Jesus, um, I, you know, what, how do you talk about the guy from Hillsong who wrote a bunch of Hillsong songs and now he's, he, he doesn't believe at all. He's an atheist. I guess and that's the thing is when you talk about your wife and you talk about patience is yeah, you, you realize you don't, you've lost your patience with your wife. Why? Because of conviction through Christ. These guys are not convicted in their sin. They see this, this is the way I need to live my life. And there's nothing wrong with it. At this point in time in their life. And and that's why I don't ever want to, I wouldn't go to Derek Webb and say, I judge your salvation. You're never going to heaven. But his fruit that he's putting out right now, if he doesn't repent from what he believes right now, then yeah, I think there's a very good chance Derek Webb's not going to be there with us, but I hope, and I pray that God opens his eyes to repentance. So I want to put a pin in this because next week we're going to be, I think hitting this quite a bit more, but something came up as y'all were kind of talking like, okay, so how can people write these songs and not really understand the gospel? It's like, if I were to write a song about how beautiful uh, the Rocky mountains are, but I've never been to 
to the Rocky Mountains? Like, how hard would that be? Mm-hmm. Uh, if and I've never seen a picture of the Rocky Mountains, I've never heard a description that that would seem odd to me. And it's just as odd to me as how someone can be a New Testament scholar, like an expert, and also be an atheist. Because there are a lot of people out there like that. Like they are an expert in the Greek and the Hebrew and they know everything that happened, but they just don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. So how do you explain that one? Uh, We need to hit this last section before we wrap up. So I don't know whose turn it is. So y'all will just surprise me when it's time to read. So um, parable of the tenants. So we're going to start in verse 33 and close out all the way through verse 46. Who read last? I read last. You read last. Oh, Dagan, oh, you're, up. Dagan. you're up. Let's go. Sorry. Um, well, point at you. Point back, son. I just, I'm so quick to point. I love pointing. Stop pointing fingers. Okay. Uh, listen to another parable. Is that right? Verse 33? Yes, sir. Okay. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to tenant farmers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the Sorry, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants more than the first time, and they treated them the same way. Finally, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son and have regard for him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come on, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes back, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, well, he will be put, he will put those despicable men to a miserable end and rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will pay him the proceeds at the proper, at the proper seasons. Jesus, am I, am I going still? Sorry. Yeah. Read all the way through the end. Jesus asked them, have you never read in the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected and threw away has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous and wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was talking about them. And although they were trying to arrest him, they feared the people because they were weenies. No, because they regarded <laughs> Jesus as a prophet. This is the weenies episode. <clears throat> Can't wait. Are the weenies made out of ham, potentially? Um, <laughs> oh, yes, it came uh, up again. I'm a turkey dog man <laughs> myself. Uh, All right. We don't so have a lot dry. of time on here at the end. So we, uh, we need to kind of speed this up. In terms of this, this tenant, the parable, the landowner here is God. The vineyard is Israel, the kingdom of God. The vine growers are the leaders of Israel, right? The rejection of the landowner's slaves, that's kind of a rejection of the prophets by the Jewish mm-hmm. religious leaders. And the rejection of the son is a rejection of Jesus, obviously. And so I want to really focus in on that last part that you read there, Dagan, uh, specifically verses 43 and 44. Um, verse 43 in the ESV says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Most people in Protestantism, uh, or just, I guess, Christianity would say that this is the moment that Israel was replaced by the capital C church. Catholics would claim that they are cornered the market on the capital C church. Protestants would quibble with that. But in terms of God's like program, which is, I think, how the Moody commentary said it was like God's program, the church has now replaced Israel. And so when people are looking for that moment, that crossover moment, so if you're a Jew, and you know you're you've you know stumbled your way accidentally into the book of Matthew, and you're wondering when did these freaking Christians or when did these Jews decide that you know Jesus was the Christ that was foretold, and when did we switch over from us being the chosen people and Israel being so important? Verse forty three, that is what everybody points to. So is that kind of what y'all saw as as y'all were going through uh, different commentaries or anything? Same, yeah. and I'll piggyback on as you continue in verse forty five on the previous parables, they were stumped. And maybe they got it. Maybe they didn't. They understood this one. Yeah. They knew what he meant. They knew where this was going and they got it right. And I thought uh, the MacArthur commentary had an amazing uh, sentence about verse 44. So I'll read verse 44 again. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So this is a direct quote from the John MacArthur commentary. This saying suggests that both enmity and apathy are wrong responses to Christ. And those guilty of either are in danger of judgment. 
And the way this works out is because if you were to throw this against the stone, whatever you threw against it breaks. If you were to throw the stone against the thing, it still breaks. And so people try to get wrapped around the axle about, okay, is this enmity or apathy? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's both. It's either. It doesn't really matter in this particular scenario. So I thought that was an interesting section here. Other thoughts on, on this last section of Matthew 21. You know, I can't help think what, what type of tenets is the modern day church? Oh boy. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm yeah. reading this and I'm like, man, he is really giving it to the, to the religious leaders of the day. And, and I can't help but just think like, what kind of tenants are we when he comes in? Like, what, what is he going to see? You know, I think I, I can't remember. It was earlier in Matthew where it talked about uh, the bad trees would be rooted up and, and thrown into the fire and things like that. And I think that's essentially what we're seeing is there's a lot of churches that look healthy because the buildings are nice. They look healthy because of the HD cameras that, you know, online churches filmed on and like, gosh, the outside of the cup, the, the RZIM side yeah. of the cup looks really good. And everything's very well produced and it's very pretty and it's very attractive, which I'm not against those things. If you are a Christian, you should be able to produce the most beautiful and perfect like seeming content on the planet. But my goodness, there's nothing. There's just nothing to a lot of these ministries. There's nothing to these pastors. These are, these are guys that bought in to the, uh, the franchise model of how to build a church. Yeah. So you build one. And then you get enough money and you do kind of a 1035 exchange and then you, you put money into the next place and then you get a bunch of people to build that place up, get everybody to pay for it in cash. And then you just do that. And eventually you're sitting there and you've got 10 churches, like you're building a rental uh, property empire. And it's just like, that's not it. That is just flat out. Not it. I, I think you're bringing up a great point because man, I think there are a lot of churches that think they're doing well just because their numbers are growing, but there's, there's no gospel being preached. There isn't. And if you look at these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were just keeping, the Pharisees were keeping people down. And it's, if you look at the modern day church, they're not doing much to keep people up. They're not discipling them. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're, that's what we're missing a lot is discipleship. And these Pharisees were not discipling these people. They were just telling them what they were doing wrong all the time and why they weren't any good. Now we have in, a, in, a, in an era of church where they tell everybody, Hey, it's all about self and it's all about self-acceptance, but we're afraid to tell people, Hey, this is what Christ has called us to do. You know, you can't live your life that way. No, we're not going to tell anybody that because that's not going to keep them coming into our doors. Well, so we're seeing an opposite effect now in the I, modern day church. And, and I think, I think people that listen to this, you know, need to know that if, if they, if they don't have a lot of experience with church, if they didn't grow up with church, if they are going to a church that isn't challenging them, that should be a red flag. You know, if they're not preaching the word of God, like from the Bible, that's a red flag. Like there are unhealthy churches out there. There are churches that are bad tenants of our heavenly father's vineyard. And those, those exist. So well, ask, I, ask hard questions of the church leaders that, that, that get up on the pulpit every Sunday. And if they don't have good answers, you know, you, that's a red flag. Always say, if you walk into a church and you feel like you're a good person, when you leave, find another church. If you walk into a church and you feel like you're in condemnation, find a different church mm. because what the gospel brings you is conviction, not condemnation yeah. and not telling you you're good. Because if you were good, it's like going back to the rich young ruler. What is good? Who is good? God is good. Jesus is good. We're, we're not good. That's why we need him. And, and one last thing, and then we'll close it out with, so one thing I get asked a lot and I hate not having the answer to a question that I'm asked, but I will have someone say, hey, I just moved to you know, Knoxville, Tennessee, and I want to find a church. Do you know of a man-friendly church in my area? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and if somebody asked me about Edmond, the city I live in, like I you know, would be hard-pressed to kind of give them an answer. I know what they're asking. It's the same thing. Like If you move from Edmond, Oklahoma, and you've trained at the, the Forge Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the last five years, and you moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, you want to know if there's a legit Jiu-Jitsu school in your area so you don't have to try out 10 of them. You want somebody to kind of get you to the end. But what I tell people is exactly kind of what y'all have gone through. Like, do, are, you, are you getting spiritual skittles? Like, do you, do you feel good when you walk in and good when you walk out? Do you feel like you're just condemned and judged the entire time? Probably not a healthy church. Did you hear a sentence or two of the Bible and it was eisegeted, not exegeted? So eisegete is where you read into the scripture what you want it to say and exegete is to explain what it says and in the context that it's in. And I, I try to tell people all the time, 
Don't get distracted by the size of the parking lot. Don't get distracted by the clothing of the preacher because people want to get on the preachers and sneakers for wearing $1,000 Jordans, but they're not noticing the guy that's wearing the three-piece suit is wearing $1,000 Italian loafers. And so it's like, I'm sorry, don't, don't get on to me about the sneaker stuff. But it's not about the size of the congregation either because some people are like, I want to have a big impact. It's like you can have a big impact in a small church. Yeah. You might be able to have a bigger impact in a small church because they're going to need you. And I forget who said this initially. There's a parking lot test. Oh, it was Owen Strand said this the first time he came on the show. Um, there's a parking lot test with churches. Do you see men in the parking lot? Are they helping older women uh, get their way inside? If it's raining, are they the ones holding the umbrellas while they're getting wet? Are the men serving? Um, so if you want to find a man-friendly church, are the men singing during worship? Can you hear men's voices? Can, can you hear mm-hmm. the bass in the men's voices? Um, do you see uh, men fervently worshiping? Do you see men obviously discipling and catechizing their children, even in the hallways? Do you see when there are volunteer opportunities that it's not 95% men or 95% women, but you see a lot of men? Do you see men not waiting for the planning committee or the missions committee to come up with something that the men can do if it's just happening? Having a, a healthy church, a man-friendly church, isn't about how big your men's ministry prayer breakfast is Saturdays at 7 a.m. It's about are the men in your church working after God's heart and doing it out of an overflow of the gospel reality in their life. So there's more that can be said there about Matthew 21, but we're going to go ahead and close that out. But guys, come back here next week, <clears throat> excuse me, where we are going to dig into Matthew 22. And so before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I didn't mention the, the Crossway stack, but we do have a stack of books that you can get from Crossway. That is our forging table starter set. So you can check that out in the show notes and also link to where you can hop on board and be a donor. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Per. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>